Let's open our Bibles this morning to John chapter 12. passage that we're going to look at comes right after the entrance of Jesus into Jerusalem. So we've read what happens, we know what happens, and they, they sang, and, and, and the words they say come from uh, the Psalms, and they lay their palm branches down, and cloaks in the road, and all of these things, as they saw Christ coming in, they had such expectations for him, uh, some were right and, and some, some were wrong, uh, but then we come to this passage that follows that, and there's a question raised. So if you're able, would you stand with me? And I'll read from John chapter 12, verses 20 through 26. Heavenly Father, come upon us, we ask with your Holy Spirit. Open our eyes to what you have for us, that we might see more than just these words on the page, but that these words might, through the power of your Spirit, penetrate us, enlighten us, give us understanding about how we are to live because of these great truths. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. John 12, 20 through 26. Now there were certain Greeks among those who were going up to worship at the feast. These therefore came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida of Galilee, and began to ask him, saying, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Well, Philip came and told Andrew, and Andrew and Philip came and they told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, saying, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains by itself alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. He who loves his life loses it, and he who hates his life in this world shall keep it to life eternal. If anyone serves me, let him follow me, and where I am, there shall my servant also be. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him." So this is God's inspired word for us today. So please be seated. Alia Yachta Est. How's your Latin? Anybody know that one? The die is cast. The die is cast. Now, none of us were around, but take, I'll go, go back with me. This is the Ides of March, the day on which Julius Caesar was murdered on the steps of the Senate in the Rome. I mean, it's not today, but this all fits in. Julius Caesar was born in, with such, it seemed, an unbridled passion and uh, skill in oratory. He had managed to manipulate his way all the way up to the proconsul position uh, in Rome by 59 B.C., and after that, his year of service in that position, he went on to Gaul, France, and, and from there he managed to conquer not only the Germanic tribes, uh, but also the Celts. His popularity grew to such an extent that the Senate, and especially Pompey, were deeply alarmed and they issued him this edict, or this ultimatum, um, that he should disband his army, lest he become an enemy of the state. On January of 49 B.C., Caesar was staying in the northern Italian city of Ravenna, and he made, had a decision to make. Either he acquiesced to the, the, the demands of the Senate, or else he moved southward. 
towards Rome to confront Pompey, which would, of course, lead to civil war. Now, there was a law that no general should cross the river Rubicon, and no general should ever bring his army into the city of Rome. It was said that he wavered a little bit as he came to the Rubicon and stood on its banks, and then all of a sudden he drew his sword, marched into the Rubicon, and yelled, Alia Yacta Est, the die is cast. From there he marched into Rome and, of course, defeated the armies and, and the emperor there, Pompey, and became its dictator, and then five years later he was dead. Five years later he was dead. Now, Luther Whitlock pastor, professor, theologian, stood in a pulpit in First Presbyterian Church in Orlando a few years ago, and he addressed some 1,000 Presbyterians that filled that, filled that sanctuary, and those Presbyterians had just been presented a plan about leaving the, the PCUSA and joining the EPC, and he called it the Presbyterian Rubicon of our day. We all thought that was pretty heady stuff, man, pretty exciting. That we would cross in the Rubicon. He said, he said, once you go here, you can never go back. And of course, that was correct. There's no turning back. But the good thing is that after more than five years, we're still alive. You know, unlike Julius Caesar. Well, Jesus did something very similar here. Although this moment did not just come to him in a moment. This moment had been set from time immemorial from long long ago from before the creation of the world when only the father and the son and the holy spirit existed it was decided that the son would give his life to atone for the sin of those whom the father would call so jesus had set his face like flint towards jerusalem the die was cast this is where he was going and now what had been decided long long ago was coming to fruition there would be no turning back. There would be no retreat from this. Time had now run out for Jesus, but also time had now come to the fulfillment for Jesus as well. The passage comes in, in, that we're going to deal with. There's a question that comes from us from certain Greeks. Now, we're not exactly sure who these Greeks were. Another word for Greeks would have been Gentiles, obviously, so it is unknown. Perhaps they were there to, to worship and to see and to experience everything that was going on. And they see this and something leads them. But, but we understand that it's, it's kind of strange that they would ask this question because the, really the Messiah was a, a Jewish thing. It wasn't a Greek or Gentile thing. It was a Jewish thing. So they come to Philip and ask Philip, and Philip goes to Andrew and checks with Andrew, and Philip and Andrew together go to Jesus. And the question is, sir, we would see Jesus. We would see Jesus. Now, you can go to many pulpits across the, the world, many famous pulpits, and you will find that engraved on this side of the pulpit. Okay, Not so that you can see it, but so that whoever fills this pulpit can see it. When Dave Reynolds retired, his parting gift was a plaque that said, sir, we would see Jesus. We would see Jesus. And it kind of, um, I think that those words should haunt anybody who preaches or teaches God's word. I mean, it's a very humbling thing to be a pastor or a teacher who understands that these words carry power. Not what I say, but these words here out of this book. And it's such a strange thing. Let's, let's face it. 
We're a very educated people. We live in a modern society. You can have a conversation with somebody all the way across the world instantaneously, but yet we hold up this book and say there's something here. There's something here that, that, that does something in my heart that no other book does. And it's not just the words. It's not just the pages. I mean, you, you can go to any printer and have any printer in the world print up a Bible, but it is the power of the Holy Spirit working through these words on the page that change our lives. It is the power of God unto salvation. It is. And God uses that to inform us and to change our, our, our lives. Now, you might come here this morning, and, and you're going to, you get to listen to me, get to listen to me, okay? Now, after, after perhaps a thousand plus sermons that, that I have preached in my lifetime, many more opportunities to teach, maybe there is some small amount of skill in preparing and delivering something that people can follow along and, and, and grasp. But Randy's opinions are Randy's opinions, Randy's views are Randy's views. You've not come to be challenged by my views and opinions, you've been come to be challenged and enlightened by the things of God's word. But that is so easy for us to forget today. I mean, there are people who have, you know, thousands or tens of thousands of people that come to hear them speak each and every week. And plus, then, then they're on television, or then they, they, they sell all their CDs or download them on, on, on the internet, and you can hear them again and again and again. I mean, uh, or, or you have pastors who... who, who have several different locations for a church. And there might be a church far away uh, in, on the other side of town and they're over there singing and, and doing all the things that lead up to the message. And then all of a sudden, they cut to the screen and there comes the pastor at the mother church to preach the message. Now, it, it, it is very easy to fall into the, the, the thought that, you know, you've come to hear me. And for 40 minutes, you're going to sit there Paying attention in and out, I know that. But, but you know, for, for the person who is up here to get an ego and to get a big head and to forget that you, sir, that we would see Jesus. That's why you have come. That's why people come to worship, so that we would see Jesus. The question we, we ask is, do, you know, does the guy or the person up front, does they show us Christ? Do they show us Christ? Do they deepen our relationship with Christ as they dig into the word? Now, I have my own group that I read and, and, and on a regular basis. Most of them are dead. Um, you know, I'm, I'm kind of famous in my pastor friends for reading all the dead guys. Okay, I hardly read anybody who's alive. And, 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 you know, the dead guys, you know what you're getting. In, in a sense, they're not going to show up one day and, and have, have cheated on their wife or anything. Uh, they're in glory. There's, there's nothing that is going to be revealed other than, other than what they have written so far. Now, I do read some, some a lot, living people, you know. You, of course, you know Spurgeon and Edwards, the great preacher, Spurgeon, the great theologian, Edwards, living guys like John Piper and John MacArthur, um, uh, Boyce, who has, has passed away, uh, John Owen, the great Puritan, Sinclair Ferguson, who's still alive. These are the guys that I read because they challenge me to see Christ. I, I, I open their books or I, I read their sermons and go, sir, I would see Jesus. And you know what? I do. I do again and again. They take me places that, that I'm not going on my own. And they challenge me in a way that, that I, I'm not going to challenge myself. They force me into the word deeper and deeper and deeper. Listen to how Charles Spurgeon addresses this issue. 
Charles Spurgeon would speak for an hour or more to crowds of over 10,000 every Sunday without this, without amplification, without amplification. He wrote that the plaque that was attached to the pulpit he preached from constantly reminded him, they did not come here to see me. They don't want to be impressed with my brilliance or eloquence. They want to see Jesus. Now, why is this so important? Because seeing Jesus will transform us. Seeing Jesus will transform us. Seeing Randy will not. Listening to another preacher will not. Jesus is the only one who has the power to transform us. Paul writes, even though now we see in the mirror dimly, okay, our aim should be to see more and more of Jesus, to see it in a clearer and, and, and sharper fashion. As we grow, we want to see more of his glory. We want to be progressively changed into his image, more and more Christ-like. In 2 Corinthians, Paul says, but we all with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as the Lord. Just as the Lord. We have to understand that Jesus did not come on the white charger with an army behind him. He came on the foal of a donkey, which is, is so strange culturally speaking because that's, that's as lowly and as humble as you can get. And people did not go in and clean house and kill people and put him on the throne. They threw their coats on the ground. Gentlemen, when was the last time you throw your coat over a puddle for your wife? Uh, this is not on my list of things. Build on your bucket list, guys, okay? Think how impressed that she will be. But that was so common in that day. Here comes somebody very important. I'm going to take my coat off and I'm going to throw it on the ground that they can walk over it so that they don't, in a sense, touch the ground. But they want to see Jesus. So in response to their inquiry... Jesus does not, in a sense, come out and give a testimony to himself and say, well, let me tell you about myself. I was born in a small town just out, you know, just south of here. He doesn't say any of that. He gives them this truth that, that goes way over everybody's head. And, and I can just think, I mean, you know, I see this, this picture here, and I can just see Jesus giving them this truth and everybody going, what's he saying what, what does that mean? And how many times did Jesus do that? And it wasn't until after his death and resurrection that they go, that's what he meant. That's what he was talking about. He gives them this truth. Is that the die is cast. There's no turning back. Jesus has, has come to Jerusalem. He's on his way to the cross. They, they don't grasp this fully, but Jesus does. He's not coming as a political savior. He is coming as the Messiah. He's coming as the seed that must be cast to the ground because if it's not cast to the ground and die, it will never bear fruit. Let me just think. Anybody who's ever had a stock of grain, of wheat, I mean, you pull the head off and you go like this and you blow the shaft away. And what happens if you just leave it in your hand? Hold it there. It's, it's you know, precious. Or put it in your pocket. No, nothing. You're not going to get any more wheat out of it. It's not going to do anything. You've got to throw it to the ground. That outer shell has to die off. And it has to, then it will produce fruit. Not until it is cast down and dies does it produce fruit. He's the one who's coming to bear the sins of the world. 
He's the one who comes as a servant of the Lord, who will be obedient to the will of the Father. He says, if I be lifted up, I will draw all men unto myself. That's the message of his triumph. That is the measure of his triumph. That he has to die, and then he'll bear fruit. That's a consequence of being lifted up, of being crucified, of being buried, and then resurrected. He will draw sinners to himself. The measure of his triumph is salvation. Salvation. So let's look here at verse 24. He says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains by itself alone. But if it dies, it's going to bear much fruit. So the grain of wheat falls to the earth, it dies, then it bears fruit. If it doesn't die, there's no fruit that is produced from this. So Jesus says, my pathway to glory is through death. Just doesn't sell very well, does it? I mean, that is not, you want to get some followers, come and die with me. Okay, because you know what? Great things will happen, but we have to die first. That's like, you know, an artist. If you think somebody's a good artist, get one of their pictures now and say, I'm getting it now because when you're dead, it'll be worth something. I mean, if if only we'd have been around when Michelangelo was there, you know, or or somebody like that who, you know, oh, what, what it would be worth today. But that's the pathway to glory is through death. Now, the fruit that he's going to bear are Greeks, are Gentiles, believing Jews. That is the fruit that that will be produced. Their lives will be changed. I go and die on my way to glory. I'll bear much fruit. Many will be saved. And that's the truth that Jesus reveals to the Greeks. But it's now also become a truth that he reveals to us and says it's the truth about you as well. Look at verse 25. He who loves his life loses it and he who hates his life in this world shall keep it to life eternal my dying for your salvation this is what jesus says is also my design for your life it's my design for you to imitate if you want to see me be prepared to become like me. This is what happens when we ask the question, sir, we wish to see Jesus. And, say, and Jesus says, if you mean it, if you're serious about this, be prepared to become like me. Not that we'll become God, but we'll live in the same fashion that he lived. Prepare to follow me on the road upon which I'm traveling. 25 again, he who loves his life loses it. He who hates his life in this world shall keep it To life eternal. I love my life. But he says I lose it if I love it. If I hate my life, does that mean I have to walk around and tell people how miserable it is to be a pastor? Man, I hate working at that church. You know, I got to go home every night to that, that beautiful woman I live with and those girls and that dog who just thinks I'm the greatest thing in the world. I just hate this life. Is that what he's saying? No, he's not quite saying that. He says we have to understand that this life is a temporary thing. And and, and we have to understand that if we hold too dearly to this life, if we become so invested in in the temporal things of this life, uh, we're going to get lost. 
Our hearts have to be focused upon the things of Christ. Our minds and all that we are have to be focused upon the things of Christ. He says, if anyone serves me, you have to follow me. Hey, this is Palm Sunday. Everybody wants to follow Jesus, right? The crowds are yelling his name and and quoting the Old Testament scriptures and singing songs and everything is great. And You want to follow Jesus on Palm Sunday? Of course you do. Get on the bandwagon and go. Now, the end of the week is not so much. We don't necessarily want to follow Jesus to Gethsemane. What's the hymn? Go to dark Gethsemane and choir, help me. Uh, Yeah, okay, well, we'll sing it later in the week. Okay, nobody wants to go and follow him there. We're all on board today, but later in the week, because there's suffering and there's death and there's sacrifice, and I'm not so excited about that. As I am about getting on the bandwagon. Everybody's cheering. That's great. Jesus says, and where I am, there shall my servant also be. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. The Father will honor him. So ultimately, the location we're not ultimately concerned about is not the grave. It's glory. That's what we're concerned about is glory. So Jesus begins with the truth about himself. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified, and this will happen by the grain falling to the ground and dying. Then he makes a truth about himself and a truth about his followers. We will, hate, will we hate our lives in this world? Will we follow him on the path to Calvary? Will we serve the Son of God first and foremost in our lives? Will we let the truth of the Son of Man be the truth about us as well? See, now, this is the way we can see Jesus, and it's the way that we can also show Jesus. Because you're not going to bear fruit without any effort. He reveals himself to us as a person who goes to glory by dying and bearing much fruit, by hating his life in the world, loving the work of the Father so much more. And then he says, I want you to come and die with me. I want you to hate your life with me. I want you to serve the Father. I want you to do whatever he calls you to do. And if we do, we bear much fruit by showing Christ to all the world. Like I said, this this doesn't sell well today. This is kind of crazy talk. Are you really serious about this? Well, let me show you two different things about this passage and about what Christ calls us to do from this passage First, the way is hard, and secondly, the way is glorious. The way is hard, and the way is glorious. And now, don't miss either of these. If you only see that the way is hard, you will miss the freedom that is given to us in the midst of that and the power to achieve everything that the Lord calls us to do. If you only see the glorious part, you'll, have to, you'll minimize the sacrifice. You'll minimize exactly the difficulty that the Lord calls us to. So there are four things here for us. First, the way is hard. Again, from these passages, you have to die. You have to hate your life in the world. You have to follow him to Calvary. And then you have to serve him no matter what he calls you to do, no matter where he calls you to do it. Those are four very hard things because they make me do what maybe what I don't want to do. Maybe what I think does not best serve Randy's purposes. But that's what it means to be a Christian. That's what it means to be a disciple of Christ. 
And it's hard, and Jesus knew it would be hard. That's why in Matthew chapter 7, he says, the gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to eternal life. And those who find it are few, are few. It's hard to die. It's hard to hate your life in this world. I mean, not that I have to go around, as I said, complaining bitterly, but I have to say, this is not my home. This is not where I am where I find love in its full. This is not where I'm going to spend eternity. That is someplace else, someplace that I am on the road to. I am a pilgrim, and pilgrims make progress. And our ultimate destination is not this world. And this way will be hard. There will be great joys. There will be great successes and celebrations in this world. But we can't minimize that it is also hard. Now, don't get so focused on the hard to forget the glorious. And the glorious compensates for the hardness. And in fact, the glory turns the hardness of it into the most significant life imaginable. The most significant life imaginable. For the last 18 years in the United States, every 1.8 seconds, someone has turned 50 years of age. Okay? On average. So that tells you where the population is. There's a a bubble there. So... After 50, you think, well, I've made it. I mean, I've made it in my career. But how do you feel about that? And this is is what these studies have have shown here. Um, Do you think, do you feel successful? Well, yeah, yeah. Do you feel significant? Well, I don't know. And that's where we get what? Oh, I'll go out and buy a red convertible. Okay? And I'll feel better about life. Or... um, uh, what, how about a sailboat? A sailboat, I'm having a midlife crisis, so maybe a sailboat. My midlife crisis is down there on the floor. Okay, it was the cello. Uh, <laughs> that was like, oh, I need to do something. Uh, I'll play the cello. Well, maybe a red convertible doesn't make you feel all that much better. It doesn't give you any significance. How about a sailboat? No, a sailboat. How about ditching your family and starting over again? That's certainly not going to give you what you're really after. It might make you temporarily feel better, but it will not give you significance. The books tell us that we've made it. Why don't I feel like I'm significant in what I've done? To achieve significance, you have to do the very hard thing. The good news is that if you're not 50, you don't have to wait until you're 50 to achieve significance. And if you're past 50, don't think that, well, it's too late for me to achieve significance. It'll never come. Significance comes in doing the hard things of Christ. That's where we find significance. The life of Jesus that he is calling us to is glorious, and its outcome, therefore, is deeply significant. So verse 24, yeah, you have to die, but you're going to die, you're going to bear fruit. Death is not in vain. It's significant. It bears much fruit. He says, my pathway to glory is through death. Yes. Do you want to see that? And the Greeks, you know, are, are sitting here listening to Jesus say these things. He says, but, but if Jesus says, if I go and die on my way to glory, then I'm going to bear this fruit and you will be saved. And you will be saved. The Greeks, the Jews, Everybody who believes upon the Lord Jesus Christ. Bearing fruit, that is what is significant. Secondly, verse 25, you have to hate your life in this world. What will be the outcome? That you may keep your life of eternity. He who hates his life in this world shall keep it for eternity. What did 
Jim Elliott say? He who is no he who he is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to obtain what he cannot lose. If you're so focused on this world, you'll miss what the Lord has for you. So Jesus begins with the truth about himself. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. And this will happen, as he says, by dying. Then he makes the truth about himself a truth about his followers. You need to do the same thing. Not that we have to go and give up our life on the cross, but our life has to be devoted to him. In there we will find the significance we seek. 26, if anyone serves me, let him follow me. Let him follow me. And what is that outcome if we follow him? Jesus says, I go to prepare a place for you. Remember John 14? I go to prepare a place for you. And if I'm going there, what what does that promise? That I'm going to come back and take you to be where I am. In the last portion of 26, there shall my servant also be. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. What does the Father do to those who serve them? Honors him. Honors them. So Jesus is the grain of wheat that falls to the ground and dies and produces fruit. Augustine explained it this way. He said, he spoke of himself. He himself was the grain that had to die and be multiplied to suffer through the unbelief of the Jews and be multiplied in the faith of many nations. Put a grain of wheat on the shelf by itself, it does nothing. Throw it in the ground, it dies. It produces and produces and produces. Jesus Christ is the Savior first to the Jews, but also for the Gentiles. But whether we're Jew or Gentile, all have to come through Jesus Christ. There is no other means of salvation except Jesus Christ. Peter echoed those words from John, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one gets the Father but through me, Peter says. And there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. And that name is Jesus Christ. So you want to see Jesus? There it is. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, to see your Son is both hard and glorious. We like to think of of his grace and his mercy and his love and the joy that comes from Christ that we can't find anywhere else in this world. But there are hard things involved in the Christian life as well. But those hard things are glorious as well. We have to decide if I love this world more or do I love Christ more. That's the first thing. And if I love Christ more, then I will serve him and I will do what he calls me to do. And the work that comes from that sacrifice is glorious. Because many will hear the gospel. Many lives will be changed. We're just a clay pot, Lord. But yet you come and put this this wonderful gift of salvation within us that we might give you glory. That those hard things in our lives might demonstrate your glory. That we might know Christ all the more sweeter because of those hard things. 
that we might know your glories more and more because we have been pushed to where we would not normally go. But you have already been there, preparing the road for us, strengthening us, working within us to achieve what you have called us to do. Lord, come upon us on this Palm Sunday. It is a glorious day. But remind us, Lord, that those glories of Christ call to us. And they say, I want you to go where I'm going. I want you to be a servant. I want you to, if necessary, lay it all down for the glories of our Heavenly Father. These things we pray in Christ's name. Amen.